As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Basically, they've had the rug taken from underneath their feet in terms of the, fo- the football finance landscape. And if you... If you don't think that Daniel Levy has run that side of the club well, you haven't been paying attention. Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly I'm joined by The Athletic's James Moore and returning um, after becoming a father for the first time, uh, Jack Pitbrook. Congratulations, Jack. Thank you so much, Danny. And everybody's well, yes? Uh, yeah, all good. Um, but good. I'm uh, I'm going. I'm quite looking forward to having like a, a little bit more of my normal life back. I suppose I'm going to Fulham against Tottenham on Monday evening, uh, which is going to be my f- my first. It's going to be my first Tottenham game since Marseille away. Actually, I think which was at uh-huh. the start of November because obviously there's the World Cup as well in between. Um, so yeah, I am I'm actually quite looking forward to having one foot back in a kind of inverted commas normal well, life. We're very pleased to have you back, Jack, but but not as pleased as we are about the new arrival, so that's all good. First, I have to say, we're going to rather self-referentially go back to the last podcast we did. Uh, and James, you want to address my comment from the intro to Monday's show. Um, let's play the record back, and you can have another go at your response. Um, I will I will make the point, of course, what I'm saying here is out of context, but I, I won't deny saying it. Listen to this, Jack. There's a part of me that just like Naples running away, Napoli running away with the Italian league, would be happy if Arsenal won the title. To see a non-financially doped team win the title in modern football in the big leagues would be not the end of the world. And from a Spurs point of view, it would give Daniel Levy no more excuses. It can't just be, we can't do it because we're not Manchester City. We're not Chelsea. That's what I said. I don't see anything wrong with that, um, except, of course, it would mean that Arsenal would win the title. James, you 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 remained mute during that outburst. Well, no, you, you could hear a sharp intake of breath from me in the middle of that, by the way. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, I've had quite a lot of uh, blowback for this, for, for not properly taking you to task. So I just want to be explicitly clear that Arsenal winning the Premier League would be absolutely terrible, and neither I, and, and I suspect nor Danny, want that to happen. We were just, that was just a positive being put on the negative. Mm, okay. Which, you know, I think in the next 45 minutes or so, we'll be doing again. Yeah, okay. I, I accept that. Um, 
But it does lead to the grotesquerie, to quote Neil Kinnock all those years ago, the grotesquerie of reports, first-hand reports I've had from the Athletic Christmas Party last night of a very tall man with pitch-black hair dancing with delight when Spurs conceded the fourth goal. No, no, no. That was, again, that was... That was there's, that filmed, was there's, there's filmed evidence. Is there? Yes, there is. I'm sorry, is there really? I'm sorry, yes, there is, yes. I mean, that, that's, the position, that's the position you get yourself in. You're, oh, that's fine. To, so people don't hear... James, but you know, has to was at the Christmas party, long delayed for reasons I don't know. Um, it's because of the World Cup. Because of the World Cup. Thank you very much indeed. Um, celebrating Spurs conceding a goal. How can that be right? I, I um I don't think this is, I think this is actually genuinely fake news. And I, look, I mean, for reasons we've just sort of established, Spurs losing to Manchester City, maybe not entirely bad. I, I but I think uh, my reaction to the Spurs. But to the first, to the two Spurs goals actually was very pure and very like mm. sincere. I was very happy that Spurs had gone two 0 up. And again, I was I was looking for the positive in the negative when they went three two four two down. I wasn't happy that Spurs had lost. I was happy that Arsenal uh, had Man City breathing down their necks again. I think you're. Uh, I think you're. Uh, uh, it's that most exciting of sights: a very large man walking a very thin tightrope there. But um, I take I take your point about. I mean, I, it's one thing to say that for the good of football. I might be happy if Arsenal, rather than say Manchester City, Chelsea, Newcastle won the title. It's quite another of uh, of them actually winning it. And if you ask me on the day, if they do get across the line, if you ask me on the day, I probably have a very different view. Don't forget, I'm still in therapy um, from the day they won the double in 1971 and brought the cup back and the, and the to- trophy back to Islington. And all my family went out to celebrate and I leaving me in the garden as a 14-year-old in the bright sunshine, listening to about half a million people going insane. Um, I'm still in, in full-time therapy for that. Um, uh, listen, you, you, uh, you've had your say. I'll show you the bit of film I've got of you dancing around release later Release the tapes. On. Yeah, re- release the tapes, yes. Right, um, let's talk about the game. Um, 4-2 to Manchester City. I thought it might be 4-0 before the start, so some ways took it as a decent thing. Um, Tim Spears, devotion to duty, knows no end, missed the athletic Christmas party to be at the Etihad to watch last night's action. Um, this is what it had to say exactly as soon as the full-time whistle went. Gents, Danny, Jack, James, hope you're all good. Uh, James, hope you're suffering an absolutely horrendous hangover this morning. And, yeah, hello, listeners from the Etihad, full-time, City 4, Spurs 2. Spurs in reverse, I think. That's what we call that. Really good first half, awful second half. I was actually really impressed with how they played even before the first two goals, to be honest, in the first half. You know, City were really ponderous and Spurs did a great job of sort of stopping them build up any momentum at all, really. Lots of tactical fouls. They looked organised. You know, they looked like a team. Emerson Real was playing good football. Uh, Bentancourt, you know, brought some real class in midfield. And they pressed so well for both goals, Bentancourt in particular. But yeah, the second half, City just sort of... All they had to do, really, was just lift the tempo. And then Spurs' sort of familiar failings came back to haunt them, really. The first goal was a bit unfortunate, but the second, Haaland with an unmarked header, and then, you know, they shackled him fairly well to that point. And then the third is so poor. Obviously, Lloris again, again. And then Longley for the fourth. You know, they really needed to keep it at 2-2 for longer to kind of... So City would come on to them... Because they were troubling, troubling them on the counter-attack, and you, you remember that Paris' chance at 2-2. But yeah, the fact that City got their third meant that they could sit back a bit and nullify Spurs' counter-attacking threat to an extent. But still, then again, Spurs had a decent chance at, at 3-2, uh, with Kane 
find a good space in the box and couldn't just quite pick out Son. So there were sort of glimpses there, really, and, you know, they obviously went for it at the end with four attackers on the pitch, but all in all, a disappointing evening, and the defensive record is absolutely abysmal. It's the worst in the top half. There are two teams in the bottom three with, with worse records, and I think they're really hindering the chances of doing anything decent this season, to be honest, unless he's sorted out sharpest, because scoring goals not a massive problem but conceding really is and it's so unlike a Conte team it's actually the worst record he's had since he sort of launched his top flight managerial career back in like 2009 massive issue was it worth missing the Christmas party for? from a neutral point of view it was good carnage but yeah just a shame that the Spurs record doesn't really change they uh, they just put side two on first tonight Tim Spears there what I want to since we are referring back to the last podcast I need to congratulate Tim publicly because when I was in full Conte ranting mode, when he pulled me up about the three disastrous personal losses that Conte has lost, um, I had lost sight of that fact as well. And I thought it was a fantastic piece of broadcasting. I want to thank him for that. Um, Jack, you, you late nights um, with the new, new arrival and all the rest of it, but you've seen the game. What did you make of it? It didn't make me more down on Conte. I think the last, I mean, so much of the season has been a kind of has seen us drop our expectations almost week after week as Tottenham have played so badly all through the season. And maybe this is just a sign of how low the bar is now. But if you compare this to, say, you know, Tottenham, I mean, look, Tottenham's other games against big teams this season, where they've been largely awful, I think the two worst Tottenham performances this season have been Manchester United away and Arsenal at home, both of which times they were shocking. I thought they were much better than that last night. I thought the first half was really good. I thought they pressed well. They got the the two goals they got were um, a deserved reward, I thought, for the way that they played. Um, and obviously, the second half was really bad. Like you know, the the the, def- the defensive mistakes they made completely killed them in the game. But I think, strangely enough, the the worst that individuals play, and I particularly mean Lloris, whose form is obviously really uh, you know, a huge problem for Tottenham. Frankly, I think Son's. I think Son's form is a huge problem for Tottenham as well, which obviously really impedes their ability to counter-attack, which is how they've had success against Manchester City in the past. The worse that individuals play, the more... Maybe it does make me a bit more sympathetic to Conte, because I think, well, he could never have... Could he have planned for two of his best... Basically, two of his three best players to their forms to go off a cliff this season? Could he have stopped it? I don't know. So... Well, this is the one. This is the one time, Jack, where the when we always defend the manager by saying, "Well, we don't see the players in training," where it actually works against Conte, doesn't it? Because um, you know, the, the the person who has day to day contact with players who we know are fine footballers and now lost all sense of confidence, and I include Eve Basuma among those, um, is you know the common denominator is that they get trained every day by Antonio Conte. But I agree with you. Of course, the you know Son's problems, whatever they are, are not going away. I thought the performance. Um, I, I, I often I'm very suspicious of those English words, which only have a negative and no positive. In those games you talked about, the game against Manchester United, and I thought both games against Arsenal, Spurs were largely inert. Um, I thought they were more hurt last night, but I don't know what it means. You know, they were entirely hurt. They were in the game. They were positive. Um, they the pressing was good. I think Benton Kerr helped with that. That's an obvious thing. I think I think Tim also said it as well. But and nobody can really, you, you know, nobody can really allow for the, the defensive collapse. Except of course that's the pattern of the team. And that's the first time Conte's ever conceded four goals in a half. Um, that's not not very surprising, is it? And as the game was pointed out there, now Spurs' defensive record 
um, it, after the first few games of the season is appalling. You're not going to win games if you're conceding an average of two a game. They conceded the most goals in the league since October. Yeah, Tom Allnut from the Times tweeted that last night. Um, and James, uh, I can't work out, you know, people always focusing on individual errors. You know, Langley made that howler for the fourth. The first goal, the goalkeeper is in a kind of no man's land. The third goal, again, deflected past the goalkeeper at the near post. Um, they, they look at individual errors, but after after a seri- after what the, the stats we've just given out there, it's the team. I don't, you know, it's not the defenders. It's not. It's not the goalkeeper. They've all got their responsibility. But James, it looks to me like the team is no good at defending. Well, yeah, I mean that is the old cliche, isn't it? You defend from the front, and I, I wouldn't necessarily put loads of. Well, actually, you know, maybe I would because they they don't press, do they? Those forward players, like Kane, hasn't pressed for about seven years. Son. I mean, I know that's sort of partly been a tactical thing, but it's, but is way less, uh, let's say, busy than he was kind of three or four years, or two or three years ago, maybe even 12 months ago. Kudazewski, I'm not sure we've really seen him be aggressive without the ball in that way. And then, yeah, and then suddenly you, you go one step back and you've got these two players in centre midfield and they do obviously hear about after the ball, but because there's only two of them, it's far more difficult. Uh, and as you said before, uh, you know, you come back to this back three and they're not the best players in the team. You know, if you compare them to the other centre-backs uh, of the top six or seven, if you want to call it that now, big seven, if we're, if we're expanding our clique. It is a combination of the two things, isn't it? I still think there is a tactical issue and, you know, Conte works with these players in the training ground every day, as you say. And, you know, if you compared, having said that about comparing them to the top six, if you compare them to the rest of the league, obviously... Man for man, they should be a lot. I think quite a lot better than most of those teams. And you know, if they have the best, uh, worst defensive record in the league for the last sort of three or four months, then it's probably an indication that there is a collective underperformance there. But if it's a tactical, if it's a tactical issue, why did these tactics work well at the second half of last season? Well, that's a fair question. I know, I know, this isn't how like big teams tend to play in the Premier League now. Like, I mean, we've spoken in the past about how Arsenal, Liverpool, sorry, Man City and Liverpool play in a very different way from this. You can add Arsenal to that list as well, who obviously play a lot like like City themselves. But these, I don't think the tactics are necessary. I don't think the style of play is impossible to work. I think it's that maybe it's the the style of play is so dependent on having the key individuals performing at sort of a ten out of ten level which is what they did in the second half of last season, then all of a sudden, if Son's form goes off a cliff and Lloris, and you lose a bit of, whether it's tiredness or whatever, like, um, I don't know if you saw uh, Nathan A. Clark on Twitter, who is somebody who's a really, really interesting person to follow for, for Tottenham-related stuff. He did a fascinating thread the other day about how why he thinks Tottenham are less competitive this season. They're losing a lot of second balls. He thinks maybe they don't have the kind of, they don't have the right fitness to play that kind of high intensity game you know twice a week obviously last season it was easy for them because after they got knocked out of the cups they were only playing once a week uh, I don't want to like uh, mischaracterize Nathan's work so have a look have have a look back on Twitter and see what he said about it but I think it's I think it's a little bit simplistic to say it's just it's just the style of play because we know that the style of play can work although clearly this season for whatever reason it isn't working at all but you know, you, that, that's all true. Every, everything you said there is true. New paragraph. Football football coaches are also allowed to work Spurs out. You know, that was Conte, high watermark Conte. They've had the whole of the closed season to say, well, all right, this lot are going to do this, this, and this. We'll do this and this. Um, and you've seen teams deliberately pushing one of their fullbacks 
centrally into midfield against Spurs. So not only are they outnumbered three to two, they're outnumbered four to two, which is another reason why, um, you know, I, I don't judge people making idiotic mistakes like Longley made, you know. Uh, I, don't, I don't judge the defence too harshly because they are being pounded on by tidal waves of opposition. There's all, there's all kinds of reason. And some of it is stuff you can't measure, isn't it? Um, and this is where I come back to the issue, and I'm not going to talk about it today, the issue of having a part-time manager who's not going to be there long-term. Why would the players run through a brick wall for them? Some of this is about, you know, the, the extra half percent desire gives you. This is bitter for me because I think he's a club legend and without field players, it doesn't matter because you can dress up as giving them a rest. But when you drop goalkeepers, when you drop goalkeepers of high quality and renown, with the exception of Kepper coming back at Chelsea, and Chelsea, of course, the exception to all rules, I can't remember a goalkeeper being dropped because they were having a bad run, ever coming back better. And yet, if I was being steely-eyed about it, James, there comes a time when you have to say, Hugo Lloris, have a rest, mate. Maybe he was a Indian, but was there not a spell, I'm going back literally 25 years, when Arsenal replaced David Seaman with Manninger, Alex Manninger for a bit? Manninger played brilliantly, know. actually. Yeah, he was really good. They won the title like, with Manninger like, in goal. Yeah, he basically, maybe Seaman was just injured for the second half of a season or something. But uh, yeah, and then obviously they then came back. Anyway. Right. Well, the very fact you have to go back quarter of a century to find an example yeah, to, proves my point. That, like, yeah. Man, United yeah. have that, dropped, that, yeah. Man United have dropped De Gea in the past, then he's come back. Arguably, he's not, he's not as good as he was five <laughs> yeah. years ago anyway. But um, Pellegrini dropped Joe Hart, although he was probably in decline by then anyway. Yep. Broadly speaking, I think, oh, yes, you're right, Danny. I mean, it does seem... Well, thank you. At his age as well. I mean, your, your, member, your membership of the Union of Nitpickers is guaranteed for another year. <laughs> well done. Um, right, now, t- tell me, what, what, what about Hugo? It's really difficult, isn't it? Because we, we have what, 12 days left of this transfer window uh, where they could sign a goalkeeper, which I guess is my way of saying I wouldn't necessarily be confident in Fraser Forster being much, if any, better than Hugo Lloris over the next four or five months. I mean, can you imagine Fraser Forster playing in the Champions League games, for example? I don't know if he has played in the Champions League for Celtic before. To some renown, I think, against Barcelona once. Uh, but I, don't, I, I, don't, I find it hard to picture him playing in the Champions League for Spurs. Let me put a question to you. How often do you see a quote-unquote top team go out and buy a new goalkeeper in January? Very rarely. Change it. Very, very rarely. I can't think of any. And how easy is it to sign a, a good goalkeeper who could go straight into good enough to go straight into the Tottenham first team? Well, look in the, January. The, I mean, the I just, way the way Daniel Levy is is both performing and being outmanoeuvred in the transfer market um, this this month. Perachi, whoever's doing the the, the string pulling, um, I'm not wasn't talking about buying a goalkeeper. Is Fraser Forster or Buster? It seems to me, Jack. Yeah, I mean, or you or you leave Hugo Lloris there. It's tough, isn't it? Because if you drop. If you, I mean, look, if you drop Lloris, it's kind of the end, as you said. He's, ca- he's captain as well, right? He's I mean, that captain. is quite a big statement if you're dropping him. Um, 
I don't have a huge amount of confidence in Forster to come in and be much, much better than Larissa. Um, that said, I think Forster's probably better than they're probably they're probably in a stronger or they are in a stronger position than when they had Gallini as second choice, um, who I don't think was very good. But yeah, it's I mean it's a huge it's a huge decision, and it's the kind of decision at the start of the season Conte would never have dreamed that he would have to make. And when we talk about we talk about the painful rebuild and. When we've talked about that before, we've never really said Larice should have been one of the players that went. But actually, if you look at, I mean, there are some kind of cruel montages of Larice mistakes that are on Twitter over the last few days. Yeah, obviously, re- we'll add, really uh, clever. The, Everyone's very clever doing those. Yeah, be be added to, I guess, off the back of last night. Um, and a lot of those errors are from like the last three seasons, four seasons. I mean, obviously, it's always, especially in football, easy to say things in hindsight. But should Spurs have actually have replaced him or put the succession plan in place four or five years ago to have the next guy? I mean, Gazaniga was never going to be, I don't think, with respect, fantastic, the long-term fantastic number looking, one. Though. Yeah, great looking bloke. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I don't think that's enough in modern football terms to, also, uh, like, to be you, a top goal. A succession plan is really hard because. You can't. You're not going to buy a second choice goalkeeper. It's really hard to buy a goalkeeper and have them come in a second choice who's good uh, on the basis that they can become first choice when you know when the number one goes. Like number you know number one goalkeepers want to play. They don't want. You couldn't buy. I mean, look if their names you often hear linked to Meslier and Pickford. You couldn't buy one of those guys and say I'll sit on the bench for half no, a season. You couldn't. And no. also, if they wanted to buy Meslier or Pickford this month. Leeds and why on earth would Leeds or Everton even pick up the phone? Like, you know, they're trying to stay in the Premier League. I mean, I'm thinking more a case of like four or five years ago, picking up like a sort of 20, uh, an elite sort of 20, 21 year old who would be unlikely to be playing anywhere else anyway. But I mean, I suppose that's easier said than done. My guess is that um, the manager being as he is, bless him, um, I think probably he's probably safe, Lloris, for the simple reason that the manager places such huge importance to experience. And yet, last night, you could argue Perisic, Son, the goalkeeper, the more exper- the most experienced players were the ones who were, in the end, the seeds of Tottenham's downfall. I remember a press conference that Conte gave back in, in February uh, where he was, t- he was asked about the importance of Kane and Lloris to Tottenham. And Conte referred to a friend of his called Pantaleo Corvino, who was the um, former director of football at Lecce and Fiorentina. Conte quoted Corvino as always saying, you can make a mistake about your wife, but you can't make a mistake about your striker or your goalkeeper. Basically, you know, the implication being these roles are so important, you've got to get them spot on. And at the time, you know, the implication of that was, even if the rest of the Spurs team is bad or not, the fact they've got Caden Lloris in the team means that, you know, things are looking up or that they've got like a kind of, that ensures they have a slightly higher, a higher floor. But given what's happened to Larissa's form in the last year or so, Spurs, you know, Conte's now in the position of having to, having to think, is it a mistake to keep Larissa? Which is, um, you know, would, would the right decision actually be to go for Forster? And given how everything else is, you know, we know how, how bad everything else has gone wrong in the team at the moment at Tottenham, you know, Son's form, the, the back three, the lack of presence in midfield, except the lack of creativity, all that stuff. To have Larice as a big issue as well is um, it just really adds to the sense that oh, it, that simply that everything that could go wrong is currently going wrong. Yeah, I mean that 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 is that is that is uh, the the way it feels. But does all of that, Jack, 
not speak for issues with the way the club has been run in terms of in terms of like the the construction of the first team squad. I'm not not talking about the way the club is run in a broader sense, but I mean in terms of the footballing side. Like if you've got into a situation where all of those elements are declining at the same time, is that not a suggestion? And, and this wouldn't necessarily be a negative reflection on Conte, given he's only been there just over a year. Do you not? Would that not be a sign that there was like a longer term issue there? Like in terms of recruitment and whatever else? Uh, yes, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that I kind of feel like this has caught Tottenham off guard. I don't feel, I mean, clearly Tot- Tottenham don't have a plan for, or t- Tottenham didn't have a, and this goes, like you say, this goes bigger than, than Conte. This is, it has to be on Paratici and Daniel Levy's desk ultimately as well. I don't think they had a plan for Lloris' form going off a cliff. Because if they did, he'd be in the team by now. And I think that they kind of assumed that this 36-year-old goalkeeper would be good forever. But, you know, time catches up with every player and it's, ca- and it's caught up with Lloris. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to The View from the Lane. Danny Kelly, that's me, Jack Pitbrook, and James Moore are also on the firm. And we're going to talk in the second half of today's pod um, about the ownership of the club. Um, really interesting that, uh, without putting too negative a spin on it, there now appears to be all kinds of cracks and fissures appearing among the fan base about the desirability or otherwise of Daniel Levy and Enid continuing their tenure um, in charge of Spurs. I don't think there are many people who are saying they're the greatest, but there are people who, um, you know, see the thing playing out, and there are other people who say we've got to get new owners. The internet, um, and I'm, I'm going to perhaps spring something on on you here, Jack. The internet has been alive in the last few days with people saying, 
that you know Daniel Levy is the source of all the problems here, or the ownership of Joe Lewis, Daniel Levy, Enoch, Enoch for shorthand, um, and that we, i.e. podcasts, journalists, the media, should be reflecting the anger of Tottenham fans about the ownership more accurately. Just say a couple of things about that, and then I'll, I'll throw it over to you. There was a poll on Twitter which had 2,000 responses, so that's enough to qualify it as, you know, as a YouGov poll about the age of the people. If you are Enoch in, Enoch out, whatever it was that had the list, how old are you? And it's clear that very young people want Enoch out, want Daniel Levy out, and older people um, are less aggressive about it. Um, and I wonder whether this is to do with the nature of younger football fans and the feeling that you know you 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 protest and the the owners move on. But it was it, all I'm saying about it is that it was noticeable that people under forty keen to get Enoch out, people over forty um, saying, "Well, how are you going to do that?" To some extent, and that would be where I stand as well. How are you going to do that? But then it was also a bit of piece. I, I, I'm not going to give it house space because. I don't want to, but it was 3,000 words. It was very, very well argued about why Enoch are to blame. Um, it was well argued, provided you wanted the outcome to be Enoch gone. You know what I mean? It, it was it was evidence for the prosecution. And then it ended with, and this is where, I've got to be care- where, where you've got to be careful how you address people about these issues. It ended with a, a, an excoriating attack on the media. Me, you, James, all the rest of us, Apparently, in the pay of Daniel Levy. Where well, I mean, Jack, you've been—you've had a few weeks away from this. You've walked back into this firestorm about not only about Enoch per se, but about whether or not um, we in the media are giving them a soft ride. I don't think that Daniel Levy gets an especially soft ride from the media. I've read some very, very critical stuff of Daniel Levy in the past. I think that I haven't read the piece that you're describing, but it sounds a long way off target to me. The argument is that if you start picking on a manager like me, then you are giving Enoch an easy ride. I think, but that's such a flawed argument though, isn't it? I don't, the two things don't necessarily run parallel, do they? Like criticism, criticism of the manager isn't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, advocating the actions of the board. For starters, the, the board have appointed the manager, one. Uh, and, you know, the, two, the way the club is run on a business level... Uh, and you know you could argue in a broader ethical sense, you know things like uh, potentially moving to Stratford twelve years ago and the Super League and whatever else has absolutely no relation to uh, the the way Spurs lost that game to Arsenal on Sunday. Those two things are just not like linked. Uh, they they just don't run completely parallel. And uh, just to take on the criticism, sorry, Jack, just to take on the criticism of this podcast for not criticizing Levy or Enoch enough. I mean, to me, I, I, I've got to say, you know, I'm, I'm a Spurs season ticket holder. I pay a grand for that season ticket, so I'm definitely not in the pay of Daniel Levy. Quite the opposite. Um, could be argued we're enabling I, him I, though by going. Um, well, that is true. That is true. Um, I'm bored of it. <laughs> it's been twenty years. I think we worked out yesterday saying to someone on Twitter. It's seventeen years. The January transfer window, two thousand and six, was the first time I remember people losing their minds about transfers at Spurs and they weren't strength they weren't building from a position of strength from whatever which I'm not saying was a wrong argument by the way and I probably made it myself but that's the first time I remember it that's 17 and I'm sure by the way people must have been moaning during that season when they didn't have a manager for the whole season two years before that after they sacked Hoddle I'm just bored of it after 17 years and I don't think 
I don't think we need to talk about it every week. It's not news. It hasn't really changed. There's, there's probably two things that I'd want to, to add on, Levy. The first is that I think it is completely undeniable that he has done a brilliant job on uh, the sort of financial management You're of the in club. his pay. You're in his pay. And, I can hear you, you know, saying the, it. The most important thing to remember is this. Daniel Levy bought his stake from Alan Sugar in 2000 when uh for i think just under 30 million pounds it wasn't it wasn't the full it wasn't full control at the time three years later roman abramovich bought chelsea five years after that united arab emirates bought manchester city uh during this time manchester united continue continued to become one of the you know one of the biggest sports brands in the world effectively able to spend what whatever they want liverpool have had a change of ownership in 2010 they're run by incredibly smart people with fairly deep pockets themselves like it's the, the 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 situation has changed so much and it's moved against Tottenham. It's moved against Tottenham so much in the last twenty years. During that time, Daniel Levy has built a fantastic new training ground with Tottenham's own money. Tottenham, this was not something that was gifted to Tottenham. He has built the best arguably the best stadium in European football. This was not a you know, this was not built by uh this is not you know, this was not built Come by Manchester World City Games Council. It was built by, it was built by yep. Tottenham Hotspur with with their own money and money which they you know finance themselves through Bank of America, it was not. It was in no way a gift. Um, Tottenham have you know their revenues put them what sixth or seventh I think in the Premier League. They're soon obviously going to get overtaken ninth, by Newcastle. Ninth in the world, New, you know New, Newcastle effectively have money on tap from from uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, and the fact that Tottenham have continued to be competitive and I know they haven't won anything but they've got to a Champions League final they've got to League Cup finals they've had two very good title challenges under Pochettino they've generally been in and around fourth place the fact that they have been competitive during that time in as the landscape has moved as basically they've had the rug taken from underneath their feet in terms of the foot the football finance landscape that's a really big achievement and if you if you don't think that Daniel Levy has run that side of the club well, you haven't been paying attention. The second thing I want to say about Daniel Levy is this: people criticise him a lot for being uh, like not sufficient, not wanting to win enough, like being too too patient, too cautious. And I think that, and you know, I think that was a really legitimate criticism of him maybe five years ago. You know, when they were under Pochettino and they could, you know, they were maybe let's say two players away from being a really good team. Um, that said, at that point they were trying to build the stadium with their own money, which is really tough and expensive. And so maybe the money wasn't there. But I actually think that the real, I think a more pointed criticism of Daniel Levy over the last three years, I think he's been too impatient. He's been too wrapped up in this idea of being, you know, we're a big club now. We're going to win right now. We're going to get a a succession of high-profile former Chelsea managers to manage us. We're not going to sell our good players because we're a big club and we don't get pushed around and, we're going to hang on to Danny Rose for too long and Deli Ali for too long and Lucas Moura for too long. And, you know, possibly, you know, some might say Kane and Larice and Son for too long, frankly. Um, and we're going to, you know, no one's going to push us around anymore because we're a big club and we're going to behave like a big club. We're going to get the Amazon cameras in. And all, all that stuff that Daniel Levy's done in the last three years, this kind of strategic pivot towards acting like a super club. Well, some of that's preparation that, for the Super League that we didn't know about at the time. Maybe, course. yeah, maybe. Yeah. And jo- joining the Super League is part of that. Um, I actually think he's been too, I think in the last three or four years, he has taken his eye off the ball from what made the Pochettino era so good by trying to, be, you know, as we've said before on this podcast, by trying to become a kind of, you know, budget version of Chelsea, basically. Um, 
So I think that the idea that Daniel Levy isn't sufficiently ambitious about winning, I think I think that is an inaccurate criticism of him as well. I think he's I think he I I absolutely think he wants to win. I just think he spent the last few years going about it the wrong way. Um, the other thing you talked about things moving against Tottenham, and you know, obviously things are. It would I don't you know I'm not going to cry about those things because Spurs have other advantages other clubs don't have. They're in London, um, for instance. You know, this makes a, apparently a lot of difference to footballers. Things like that. They have got other advantages, but so, things have moved against them as well in the past few months as the dissatisfaction with Enoch has grown. Um, and people saying oh, they want to sell the club, they have moved backwards in the queue of desirable properties that might actually be for sale in English football. The failure of the Super League to materialise, and then the much more importantly, the recent court judgment that any Super League would have to be under the supervision of UEFA means that the American owners have said, ah, the plan's busted. It's a busted flush. We're out of here. And so Manchester United and Liverpool... Um, whether I like it or not, more desirable global properties than Tottenham Hotspur, um, AFC or whatever they're called officially these days, um, have gone to further down the queue. So screaming at Levy to sell is one thing. Finding a buyer is another, particularly when Liverpool and Manchester United are out there on the, in the market. And that's something else that, you know, James has moved against Spurs that they probably couldn't have predicted. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess so. I mean... I- if you look at the whole package of the club, though, I mean, you would say that should still be a fairly uh, desirable, uh, desirable, desirable option. But I have they left it too long to sell the club as well. You, I mean, not, you know, the COVID uh, perhaps fell at the exact wrong time in terms of selling the club. You know, immediately after they'd moved into the stadium, when they still had what looked like. Uh, a relatively strong squad, you know, the, the England captain and the France captain and whatever else, kind of somewhere near the peak of their powers. And now, obviously, we, we don't think that is the case, given what's happened to Lloris and the fact Kane's got 18 months in his contract. I mean, I'm not suggesting the current playing squad has a massive bearing on the value of a football club, but in terms of the prestige, certainly it must make a difference. If you're buying into a thing that has uh, those, uh, those aspects are already there. And who, and who nearly bought Tottenham just before COVID for £2.3 billion? Todd Bowley. So, but uh, I, I, I don't think there are, I don't think it's the lack of buyers as such. I think there are, like, like I think there are a lot of people out there who want to buy into the Premier League. Like, the, the, the Premier League is the biggest sports league in the world. Uh, Tottenham Hotspur are a very recognised name within it. They are in London. They have a fantastic stadium. They have a global and growing fan base. So, I don't think the limiting factor has been lack of interest. The limiting fact, the the limiting factor to a sale has always been, a like how much did how much did, did Daniel Levy and Joe Lewis actually want to sell? What do they want to sell it for? What's the figure? Is it you know is it three billion, three and a half billion? Uh, does the, on what terms would Daniel like Levy like to stay? If there was to be a sale, you know he he would like to stay on as CEO in the event of a sale. This is something that we we've reported at length in the Athletic before. Um, so I think those are more the kind of those those are more the limiting factors rather than a simple lack of buyers. There are you know there's not a lot of people, but there's enough people out there who would want to buy someone like Tottenham. You know, and there's also Levy may have done too much of the work as well. When when you but when these people do these big investments, the way that you can 
apart from buying players, the way that you demonstrate your commitment to the club is to refurbish the infrastructure. The first thing that will happen if Ratcliffe buys Manchester United is that he will rebuild Old Trafford. Um, Todd Bowley, um, they're going to have to move out of Chelsea for the next five for five years to Wembley probably because they have to. They're going to rebuild um, Stamford Bridge. There's not there's no work to be done except on the pitch, which is the most difficult work to do because it's the most unpredictable. At Spurs, they've got all their infrastructure in place, and it's just a tiny thing to, to bear in mind that business people like to go in and say, "I'm going to repaint the office." Well, the office is beautiful at Spurs. It's it's the uh, the thing that's happening out on the pitch that's a problem. Spurs have got a game Monday night against Fulham. Now, they've got a fantastic record against Fulham, he said optimistically, um, having won, I think, 12 of the last, last 14 Premier League games. Um, but Fulham are a pretty good and organised team these days, aren't they? The, th- the funny thing about this is that Fulham, with all due respect to Marseille, remain the best team that Tottenham have beaten this season. That's amazing, isn't it? Like, it's, it's late January, the days are getting longer, and Tottenham haven't, haven't beaten anyone better than Fulham this season. We have to hope that Spurs' remarkably good record against Fulham continues, which would shine a light uh, of happiness on the next podcast, which we'll bring you, um, I guess, on Tuesday, um, because Monday is, is the game. Um, although I hope we haven't got to that stage yet, despite James's antics last night at the party where people are wanting Spurs to lose at Fulham because it might make something happen. I think making something happen is still some way away. Listen, thank you both. I thank you all for listening. Congratulations again, uh, Jack. I'll stop saying it now, but uh, well done. I'd love to see a new life in the, in the world and all the rest of it. Spurs fans, she'll be no doubt as she gets older. And if you're not already an athletic subscriber, as I always say, it's time for you to sign up to read all of that in-depth Spurs coverage this season, as well as everything else that's on the site. You just have to go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod Sign up right now for just £1.99 a month for the first 12 months. That address again is theathletic.com forward slash Pod. Thanks for listening. See you again on Tuesday. The Athletic.